Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Uh, good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday. We are so glad you're with us. Erica is here again, as I said, looking like a ray of sunshine. <laughs> In my favorite shirt, as she knows. Yes. How you doing? Good. Nice Good. to see you this morning. Nice to see you, too. We have a lot of news to get to. A lot happened overnight. So let's get started with five things to know for this Wednesday, May 31st. There may be a deal, but we are not quite there yet with a final House vote expected today. The drama now is not between the two parties, but instead within the Republican Party. The finger pointing intensifies as Russia blames Ukraine for a drone attack on Moscow on the heels of a deadly raid on Kiev. President Zelensky, meantime, setting a date for that long-awaited counteroffensive. Also, Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis in Iowa. He uses his first official campaign stop to take on rival Donald Trump and paint a pretty grim picture of the country. A historic ruling in Big Pharma. One family set to pay out billions of dollars to help fight America's opioid epidemic in exchange for immunity from future civil lawsuits. And China claiming success in its historic cosmic mission, what this means for the U.S. and the global race to conquer space. CNN This Morning starts right now. Deal or no deal? There's a deal. Do they have a vote? Yes. That's a question. It's a huge make or break day on Capitol Hill for the debt limit deal. The House is set to vote on this bill as Speaker Kevin McCarthy faces a growing revolt by his own party, by Republicans. The deal narrowly cleared its first major hurdle last night by the slimmest margin possible. The powerful House Rules Committee did vote to advance the bill to the floor. Mr. Norman. No. Mr. Norman, no. Mr. Roy. Mr. Roy, no. Those two Republicans on the committee tried but failed to block it. They are vowing to keep fighting to try to kill this deal. Because Joe Biden was in the in a box. He was up against the ropes and we should have held him there and gotten more for the American people than a spending freeze for four trillion dollars. So time is quickly running out for Congress to pass this deal and prevent a potentially disastrous default that could crash the economy. Speaker McCarthy is walking a tightrope right now. He's trying to rally support for the bill while facing a looming threat that his job from far-right Republicans, well, his job could be on the line because they're very upset about the deal. We have team coverage. Let's begin in Washington. Our let signs is at the White House. Our congressional correspondent, Lauren Fox, is on Capitol Hill. Lauren, good morning to you. McCarthy had a closed-door meeting with House Republicans last night, and given the concessions he made to become Speaker, there are real questions about how mad some of these Republicans are and what it could also mean, not only for the deal, but for McCarthy's future as Speaker. Yeah, nothing like crunch time, Poppy. We expect that this vote on the debt ceiling is going to happen tonight around 8.30 p.m. But in the meantime, the operation to whip the votes for this deal, to make sure that you don't lose too many on the right flank of your conference, that is already underway. 
I think you're going to continue to see that vote grow. Uh, that's what happens with any major bill. Congressional leadership working to lock in enough votes to pass a bill to raise the debt ceiling negotiated by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden. Members from all across the conference shared their support for this important bill, and they shared their support for Speaker McCarthy's strong and effective leadership. The bill narrowly made it out of the Rules Committee Tuesday night with a 7-6 to six vote. The eyes have it. With two Republicans from the far-right Freedom Caucus voting against the advancement. If you're out there watching this, every one of my colleagues, be very clear, not one Republican should vote for this deal. It is a bad deal. Republican Representative Dan Bishop says he's lost confidence in McCarthy over his handling of the bill's negotiation and is threatening a vote of no confidence. It seems inescapable to me, given what has occurred and the way he was the steward of Republican unity and he blew it to smithereens. Many congressional Democrats also remain undecided. I'm still undecided. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm angry that we are being held hostage. Very disappointed, you know, very disappointed. You know, the, the mansion pipeline, uh, work requirements. I'm undecided. I'm still considering. Another factor that could dissuade some members is the Congressional Budget Office's score for the bill. The CBO says the bill will reduce budget deficits by $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years. But new food stamps provisions would increase enrollment and increase spending for that program by more than $2 billion during that period. The simple answer is the CBO got it wrong. The Rules Committee was the first hurdle in a long process to get this bill through both chambers of Congress, with just five days before the Treasury Department says the nation defaults on its debt. Republican Senate Whip John Thune believes at least nine Republicans will vote yes, which, if Democrats remain unified, would get the bill the 60-vote threshold it needs in the Senate. I hope the House moves quickly, and I'll make sure the Senate moves quickly the moment this bipartisan bill is sent to us. And on the Democratic side, they are going to hold a House caucus meeting this morning with White House officials. The hope from leadership that they are going to be able to lock in the votes on their side as well. But a couple of things to watch today on the House floor. First, the vote on the rule that will come first to the House floor. Traditionally, Republicans are the ones who get that across the finish line. They may need some Democratic votes, though, today, given some of the tough language you are hearing from members of the House Freedom Caucus and with that narrow majority. Majority. The other thing to keep an eye on, whether or not conservatives continue to threaten Kevin McCarthy's speakership for his part in cutting this deal. Yeah. Poppy and Erica? Only takes one. Lauren Fox, thank you. The debt limit deal also needs votes from Democrats, of course, to pass. The White House doing its part to get some of those skeptical lawmakers on board. Arlette Signs is live at the White House this morning. So uh, White House officials set to huddle with lawmakers today. There has been consistent communication here, it sounds like, uh, since this deal was announced. What more are we expecting? Well, Erica, President Biden is dispatching some of his top White House officials to huddle with House Democrats today as they're making their final pitch to those lawmakers heading into tonight's votes. Uh, included in that meeting will be the OMB Director Shalonda well Young, as well as Steve Reschetti, one of the president's uh, longtime advisors who helped negotiate this agreement. And what we've seen from the White House over the past few days is really this drumbeat of communication, making these one-on-one -on -one calls to Democratic lawmakers. The White House 
saying that they've called about over 100 members of Congress uh, as this agreement came together over the weekend. But heading into tonight's vote, uh, White House officials are aware they're not going to get every single Democrat on board with this agreement. They just need enough Democrats on board. Now, the White House has not said how many Democrats they do believe will ultimately vote for this bill. But the House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, has said that he is taking Republicans at their word of being able to put up 150 Republican votes. If you do the math, that would then roughly add to about 70 Democrats that they would need to get this bill across the finish line. Now, you've heard this frustration from progressives and other Democrats uh, in the party, not just with work requirements for food stamps, but also the permitting reform for energy projects. The president himself has said uh, that he's not sure if he can get all progressives on board with this proposal. But one thing that officials in their pitch to lawmakers uh, have been trying to stress is that this bill uh, prevented many of the Republican priorities that they had passed uh, in that legislation previously. They prevented that from making it into the bill. So lawmakers need to look at this, need to look at the uh, need to avert a default for the first time in U.S. history. And they are hoping that they will be able to get enough Democrats on board. Of course, throughout this process, they have stressed that this will need to be a bipartisan deal. And so they're hoping to get that across the finish line tonight in the House. And we will be watching and waiting for that final answer. Arlette, appreciate it. Thank you. All right, turning to Ukraine now. This morning, Ukrainian forces are bracing for retaliation a day after Russia accused Kyiv of sending drones to attack buildings in Moscow. Ukraine is denying that. Kyiv has had one of its quietest nights in days as Russia did not launch attacks on the capital last night, but speculation is growing that they may just be reloading their arsenal. Meanwhile, the governor of Russia's Belgorod region blaming Ukraine for a, quote, massive strike overnight, leaving four people there injured. Let's go to our colleague Fred Flechten. He joins us again this morning in Kyiv, Ukraine, with more. I mean, it is odd to see such a quiet night, especially after mm. those attacks on Russia that Russia is blaming Ukraine for. What does it feel like on the ground? Well, it certainly felt like a, a quiet night, and I think uh, no matter what the reason behind it is, the people here will certainly take it. They have been under a lot of pressure, uh, Poppy, for the past couple of days, with a lot of those Russian strikes not only happening overnight, but happening during the daytime hours as well. And there certainly was the fear here on the ground and also among authorities that there could be massive retaliation immediately after those uh, alleged drone attacks that happened in Moscow, in the Russian capital, which, as you pointed out, the Ukrainians are continuing to say they have nothing to do with, but the Russians are squarely saying they know that it was the the Ukrainians that did this. So that was one of the reasons why there was that concern that there could be big strikes coming up. And, you know, as you said, there are Ukrainian officials who are publicly speculating as to what exactly might be the case. The Ukrainians, for instance, saying the Russians might be reloading their arsenal, might be bringing more of those Shahed drones into place as well. They also say for quite some time, Poppy, that they haven't seen any uh, sea-launched uh, cruise missiles from the Russians. So they fear that something like that could be in the works as well. There's one official, an advisor to the Interior Ministry, uh, who is speculating whether or not maybe that uh, drone attack in uh, Moscow did have an effect uh, on the Russian government, even though the Ukrainians are saying it was not them, that maybe it was something that could cause them uh, to maybe slow down a little bit as far as the strikes in Kiev are concerned. Again, very difficult to say, but certainly the folks here on the ground will take the quiet that they had last night. But what about, Fred, the strikes in Belgorod, in that region, four dead as a result? Mm. Is that the beginning of a counteroffensive? Yeah. yeah. 
it could very well be at least one element of that where potentially the Ukrainians, um, you know, we've heard might be trying to put the Russians under pressure on their own turf to then possibly launch a counterattack uh, somewhere else, uh, just, just to, uh, to, to deviate from where the Russians are able to build up forces. Obviously, also the Russians having to strengthen their border in the Belgorod region as well. Of course, we had that cross-border raid by that anti-Putin Russian group just last week. And now overnight, there were these considerable strikes, as the governor of the Belgorod region put it, that injured several people on the ground there in a small village called Shebekina. I was actually in that village mm -hmm. in the early stages of Russia's invasion of Ukraine as we were stationed down there. It's a very small place, but certainly someone, a place that's very close to an important military center for the Russians. So that's certainly something where we see that the Russians are under pressure on their own turf. Unclear whether it's part of that new offensive, but certainly something the Kremlin today said is very concerned about. Fred Plankton for us in Kiev. Really appreciate the reporting, Fred. Thank you. We'll head in our next hour, 7 a.m. Eastern hour. We'll speak with the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko. He'll join us on CNN this morning. Emotional testimony, heartbreaking 911 calls heard during day one of the Tree of Life murder trial just ahead. The last words from those who were killed inside their own synagogue. We are also going to take you live to Iowa this morning, where Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is now sharpening his attack against his former ally. Well, now he's attacking me over some of these disagreements, but I think he's doing it in a way that the voters are going to side with me. I think our voters are looking at this and they say, you know, yeah, we appreciate what he did, but we also recognize there are a lot of voters just aren't going to ever vote for him. We just have to accept that. That, of course, GOP presidential hopeful, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Slamming former President Donald Trump's electability there. This morning, DeSantis continues his campaign swing across Iowa. He's expected to leave for New Hampshire just as former President Trump arrives in the Hawkeye State. CNN's Jessica Dean is live this morning in Des Moines. So, Jessica, Governor DeSantis, I guess the gloves are officially off at this point. He's really been sharpening his attacks against Trump. Yeah, he certainly is. And it was interesting to note that in his remarks to the crowd last night, he really didn't go after Trump directly at all. But it was when he talked to the press afterward that we heard more about that. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis kicking off his White House bid on Tuesday. It's great for me to report that our great American comeback starts by sending Joe Biden back to his basement in Delaware. <laughs> making his first campaign stop in Iowa, a state set to give an early glimpse into whether Republican primary voters can move on from former President Donald Trump. If you don't win. There is no substitute for victory. We must put an end to the culture of losing that has infected the Republican Party of recent years. The governor notably did not mention the former president by name in his kickoff address. At the end of the day, leadership is not about entertainment. It's not about building a brand. It's not about virtue signaling. It is about results. But as the Trump campaign steps up its attacks on the Florida governor, DeSantis made clear his rebuttals to those criticisms while taking questions from the press after his speech. He used to say how great Florida was. Hell, his whole family moved to Florida under my governorship. Appearing confident that voters would reject Trump's attacks on his former ally in Florida. Now he's attacking me 
over some of these disagreements. But I think he's doing it in a way that the voters are going to side with me. And taking indirect jabs at the former president himself. I don't need someone to give me a list to know what a conservative justice looks like. All while summing up where he thinks his real fight lies. I'm going to focus my fire on Biden, and I think he should do the same. He gives Biden a free pass. Um, I'm focusing on Biden. The first official stop as a candidate, a smoother campaign launch than the glitch-filled Twitter announcement for DeSantis last week. The governor offering familiar attacks against the Biden economy. The Biden administration is doing all it can to make it harder for the average family to make ends meet and to attain and maintain a middle-class lifestyle. And criticizing fellow Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's debt limit deal that's now headed to the House floor on Wednesday. The bill for the massive borrowing, spending and debt and record printing of money by the Fed, that's falling on the American people. Today, we expect to see Governor DeSantis traveling all across Iowa as he talks to voters here, Erica. And from here, he will travel to New Hampshire and South Carolina, of course, hitting all of those early states. And we anticipate seeing him doing that often and aggressively. Uh, To that note, he'll be back here on Iowa on Saturday. Erica. It's going to be a very busy few months ahead. Jessica, appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Now to this, the trial for a man accused of killing 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018. That trial opened yesterday with horrific 911 calls from the attack. One of them included a woman's final words. Bernice Simon is heard saying, quote, Tree of Life, we're being attacked. We are being attacked. My husband is shot. Oh, dear God. My husband is bleeding. He is shot in the back and I'm scared to death. And then she stopped talking. Bernice and her husband, Sylvan, both died. They got married at that synagogue, at the Tree of Life, 62 years before they were shot there. Families of the victims, members of the Jewish community, were also in the courtroom yesterday. They could be seen leaving the courthouse at the end of the day and getting on a bus with a police escort. Prosecutors are calling for the death penalty for the suspect, Robert Bowers. Bowers is accused of carrying out the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history according to the Anti-Defamation League. Danny Freeman is live for us again this morning in Pittsburgh covering all of this. So we heard from you before the trial began yesterday, and now we've seen prosecutors as they lay out their case in these opening remarks. Walk us through it. That's right, Poppy. And by the way, you just mentioned exactly how emotional and challenging yesterday was in the courtroom with some of those 911 calls. But I'll get to that in a second. Really what the prosecution tried to do yesterday is not only establish that Robert Bowers was the one who killed 11 worshipers in Pittsburgh in that synagogue on that day in October of 2018, but also that he did it specifically because those worshipers were Jewish and he did so in a truly horrific fashion. And yesterday we really learned new details about just how violent and just how intentional that shooting was. Prosecutor said that Robert Bowers went through the synagogue room by room, methodically hunting Jewish worshipers. That's the prosecution's word. Now, in the end of that shooting, the SWAT team actually from Pittsburgh got into a shootout with Robert Bowers. He eventually surrendered and a SWAT officer asked Bowers, why did you do this? And Bowers responded, according to the prosecution, because all Jews need to die. Jews are killing our kids. Now, what's interesting is we also heard from the defense yesterday in their opening statements, and they're not 
disputing any of the facts. They say the defense attorney, Judy Clark, said that Bowers' actions were incomprehensible and inexcusable and that there will be no question as to that this was a planned act. However, the defense is asking the jury to consider if, in their words, his irrational motives and misguided intent, if those things fit with the 63 felony charges that he is facing. But, Poppy, I want to walk through the 911 calls that you just mentioned at the top. You heard from Benice Simon. You read that particular phone call. It was so harrowing. Rabbi Jeffrey Myers, who was the rabbi of the Tree of Life congregation, he survived the shooting, and they played one of his 911 calls in the trial yesterday, and it was harrowing. You heard him desperately trying to guide first responders to the synagogue and to his room, and then prosecutors realized that there was a silence in the 911 call. So prosecutors asked Rabbi Myers, why was there this silence? Uh, this silence, rather. And Rabbi Myers said, I was praying because I expected to die. I was initially trying to decide in that moment, Rabbi Myers said, whether I hang up the phone and call my wife or make a video for her. But he said, I thought if this was the end, I wasn't going to leave her, my wife, a message like this. So again, just an incredible, intense day uh, in the courtroom yesterday, and we're expecting to see more of that in the days to come. Bobby? Danny, we really appreciate you being there. Thank you for the reporting. The billionaire family that owns Purdue Pharma will now be protected from lawsuits over their role in the opioid crisis. How this decision impacts victims and their families. Also this morning, we're hearing from the 11-year-old boy who called police for help but was shot in the chest instead. I think, like, like I'm going going to die. Tell everybody, tell my whole family, tell my teacher. I say, I say, I'm sorry for for what I did. More CNN this morning to come after the break. An appeals court in New York has granted the Sackler family immunity in exchange for a $6 billion opioid settlement. Now, the billionaire family that owns Purdue Pharma will now be shielded from current and future lawsuits. Purdue Pharma began selling OxyContin in the 1990s, branding it as a, and this is key here, a non-addictive drug. They're accused of fueling the opioid crisis that has killed more than half a million people over the last 20 years. CNN's Gene Casares joining us now with more. So, Gene, the Sacklers have to personally pay out this $6 billion but then that's it? Then they are shielded from private claims, individual claims. You know, this started in 2019. Purdue Pharma declared and filed for bankruptcy. So you've got Purdue Pharma, which is the company. You've got the Sacklers, which are the individuals. The Sacklers did not file for bankruptcy, just the corporation did. And I remember I was actually in that courtroom when the judge announced that day from the very beginning that all these private claims, because everybody was suing the Sacklers, right, that they were going to be folded into the bankruptcy claim because in the channels of bankruptcy. And so that is where the case proceeded. And all this negotiation for all these years has really been how much money of personal funds are they going to pay for victim compensation, for uh, programs to abate, you know, community programs, state programs, programs, addiction programs, and then medications for crises for people who are addicted. 
And that was the negotiation. So it was reached in March, 5.5 to $6 billion out of their personal funds will do it. But then the appeal started because many said this isn't fair. All these individuals are not going to get compensated, although it was folded into bankruptcy. Let's look at what part of the opinion says, because this was an appellate court. So this is a, an important precedent-setting case. They said, our creditors understand the plan is the best option to help those who need it the most. The most fair and expeditious way to resolve the lit litigation and the only way to deliver billions of dollars in value specifically to fund opioid crisis abatement efforts. And it's interesting, the opinion, because it came down and I was reading it last night, the judge says, when you have a bankruptcy action, it's going to, be, it's going to seem unfair to some because you can't service everyone. You have to do what is in the best interest of the whole. And the attorney general for California, very upset, his state's getting $500 million but he is saying that individual claimants are not getting to go to court, and that's not fair to them. Shame. And often for them, it's important to be heard. Yeah. Not mm -hmm. just about the money, but to be heard personally. And there was a hearing on that during that bankruptcy yeah, action. I remember where that. Some were heard at representative of a whole. Thank you. Thank Thanks, Jean. Now this video shows a Chinese fighter jet making what the U.S. military is calling this morning a, quote, aggressive maneuver while intercepting U.S. spy plane. We're going to talk about that and the latest, of course, on the strikes in Ukraine and the drone strikes in Moscow with the former defense secretary under President Trump. That is Mark Esper. He's with us next. Overnight, four people were hurt in what Russia calls a, quote, massive attack. This is on the Belgorod region. Eight apartment buildings, four homes, a school, and two administrative buildings were all damaged in the shelling. And this marks the second attack on Russian soil this week. Russia blames Ukraine for the drone strikes that hit residential parts of Moscow on Monday. Ukraine has denied any direct involvement in that. The White House says it's still gathering information. We'll be joined by John Kirby next hour from the White House on that. But this all comes as Ukraine continues to face a relentless barrage of Russian drone strikes in Kyiv. And as President Zelensky says, he has decided on a date to launch the long-awaited counteroffensive. Let's talk about these developments and a lot more with former Defense Secretary under former President Trump, Mark Esper. He also serves on the board of the weapons technology company, Epirus. It's good to have you, Secretary. Thanks for your time this morning. What's, what's your reaction to what we're seeing? We just had Fred Plekton reporting for us from Kyiv, where it was interestingly relatively quiet overnight. No Russian strikes on the capital, as we've seen in past nights. But we are seeing this increase in attacks on the Belgorod region. What do you make of that? Right. You know, I'm, I'm calling in from Slovakia, which is a frontline state with Ukraine and have been meeting with uh, European leaders here for the last few days. And everybody is anxiously watching and awaiting what is happening. Uh, my assessment is that these are part of Ukraine's what we call shaping operations. You've seen everything from uh, 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 rail, rail cars being derailed, uh, refineries being bombed, other things happening in Russia, in Crimea. And now you have these attacks, the drone attack. You have the, the attack last week by armed anti-Putin militia, Russians, uh, in Belgorod. So I think this is all part of the shaping oper operations designed to, to uh, de distract Russia, to make them move forces around the battlefield and do other things so we can 
so that the Ukrainians can have the most mm. successful operation possible. So as all of that is happening, there is also speculation, of course, about specifically when we look at these drone attacks in Moscow, whether Ukraine may have been behind them. Uh, the New York Times previously reporting U.S. intel believes that the earlier attack on the Kremlin was likely carried out by one of Ukraine's covert military groups. If Ukraine is striking in Russian territory, do you believe that should give the U.S. or other NATO countries pause when it comes to weapons that are being supplied? This has been, as we know, a point of contention. Yeah, and I saw the White House statement yesterday. Look, uh, first of all, Ukraine has the right of self-defense. And secondly, uh, Russia should not have sanctuary. Russia doesn't get to destroy, uh, kill civilians, rape, murder, and pillage all across Ukraine now for 15 months and then cry foul when Ukraine or Ukraine supported or maybe it's anti-Putin groups uh, shoot drones in Moscow. I, I just think that's, uh, that's, uh, that's wrong. That's not right. And I think uh, Ukraine needs to leverage whatever it can with whomever they can at this point to strike legitimate military targets in Russia. Let's turn to China because, and I want to show you this video as, as we talk about this. There's video now this morning of the U.S. military, what they're calling an unnecessary aggressive maneuver by a Chinese plane intercepting a U.S. spy plane. This happened over the South China Sea. So the U.S. is saying, look, this happened in international waters. This, as President Xi Jinping is calling on his national security chiefs to prepare for what is, he is deeming worst case scenarios. And he says they need to increase their mobilization and make it more effective, quote, in actual combat and practical use. This is the lines of communication between Defense Secretary Austin and his Chinese counterpart are not open. Yeah, look, the relationship continues to spiral downward, and I would say that it's uh, largely due to Chinese bad behavior. These incidents in the air, for example, have occurred for years, and most infamously, if you recall, 2001, when a Chinese uh, fighter plane bumped into a U.S. RC-135 aircraft, which was forced to land on Hainan Island. And we eventually got our, our airmen back, uh, but not the plane. And so this has been going on for years. China, China asserts it has a complete uh, uh, ability to control its airspace. That's not its airspace. It's international. But look, in the past several months, we've had everything from Chinese spy, spy balloons to the discovery of Chinese police stations to continued espionage. FBI says every 12 hours they're opening up an espionage investigation against China. So Chinese bad behavior goes on and on. And, and, and here they are supporting, of course, Russia in this terrible war in Ukraine. So look, I, I think we need to continue to uh, work to try to get China on the right path. We need our European allies in addition to our Indo-Pacific allies on board with us. But this is part of the, this great struggle that the democracies of the world are facing now against the autocracies of the world in this, in this century. But what, what does it mean work to try to get China on the right path? Given everything you just listed, what are you suggesting the administration even does at this point? A continued unified stance, uh, both in the region and abroad, particularly also in international organizations and any number of UN organizations, for example. I think we need to continue to bolster our economic relationships in, in uh, the Indo-Pacific through uh, trade and tax treaties. Uh, I think we need to continue through uh, uh, formal coalitions like NATO or ASEAN or informal ones, such as the Quad Quadrilateral Security Initiative, to continue to build a consensus against China's bad behavior and defending international rules and norms uh, that we've built up over the past 70 to 80 years. We'll see. Mark Esper, always appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank well, you. Smoke, smoke from wildfires in Canada is drifting into the Northeast. We have the weather team here to break down just how it could impact your air quality.
This morning, officials in Davenport, Iowa, are trying to decide whether to go ahead with plans to demolish a partially collapsed apartment building or to give rescuers more time to try to search that building for people who are still missing this morning because at least five people remain unaccounted for. Two of them are still believed to be inside. Crews re-entered the building yesterday and rescued several animals. They were told that they did not detect any signs of human survivors. The family of one of the missing says they've come to terms with the likelihood that their loved one did not make it. I don't believe he's alive. He's always helping people and um, he's, he's friendly. The city does have a plan and pushing any delays is one more day that he's under there. Making, going through all of all of this, Ryan wouldn't want anyone else to put their lives at risk. Firefighters brought out a woman on Monday evening, more than a day after the historic structure suddenly collapsed. Y'all want to tear down the building, and you know you got five people still unaccounted for. Help me understand that. The building collapsed, and we haven't seen my cousin Brandon Colvin since then or heard anything from him. Take a look. These are some live pictures this morning as the sun has come up in Davenport. They show the building now. The city had planned to demolish it yesterday. The timeline changed after that woman was found. Erica. Smoke from wildfires in Canada is drifting hundreds of miles and bringing a second day of haze to some areas of the Northeast. So yesterday, smoke blanketed Boston and areas of New York. We can show you a hazy New York City skyline you see there. The One World Trade Center building just visible there in downtown Manhattan. CNN meteorologist Derek Van Dam joining us now. So Derek, how much more of this can we expect today? Could it be thicker? Yeah, I believe so, especially if you're located in New Jersey or eastern sections of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Baltimore. I'm looking at you. And the reason, as you stepped outside this morning, you saw that beautiful bright red sunrise is because the smoke in the atmosphere actually blocks the shorter wavelengths in the visible spectrum that you and I see. And it leaves just the red wavelengths, which are the longer wavelengths, of course. But the problem is when that smoke settles to the surface of the earth, and that's when it starts to impact the quality of our air. And that's also the issue that we've been contending with. Just people reaching out to me on social media talking about how they could literally smell the smoke from the wildfires from Nova Scotia. We have an air quality alert for New Jersey and north or southeastern sections of Pennsylvania, including Baltimore and Pittsburgh. But check this out. You got to consider what smoke is. It's a fine particulate matter. The diameter there only about two and a half microns, so very small. Compare that to, let's say, the diameter of a human hair, 50 to 70 microns. So the ability for this small particle to entract itself deep within your respiratory tract is a real issue. That's why people with respiratory illnesses, the elderly, children have problems when they're breathing in smoke this thick. You can see the air quality not so great. In fact, moderate to unhealthy for places like New Jersey and southeastern Pennsylvania. You can see on the satellite some of the smoke that drifted in over the past day. It's all thanks to this high pressure system and low kind of working together to create that wind direction that brings it all on shore. So what does the future hold? Well, more smoke for the areas that I've mentioned, but I do expect that wind to become strong enough to help disperse some of this uh, smoke across the East Coast over the coming hours. So that's the good news, but it certainly makes for beautiful sunrises. <laughs> you know what? That's also some good news. So there you go. We'll focus on the beautiful sunrise, right. Derek. Thank you. I like that. 
Well, ahead for us, wait until you see this. A little boy calls 911 to help his mother, and then an officer shoots him in the chest. CNN sat down with that 11-year-old survivor who really made it through the unthinkable and is now demanding answers. What did you do with I could have lost, lost my life all because of you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. So an 11-year-old boy in Mississippi this morning is speaking out after he called 911 for help. He was then shot in the chest by one of the officers responding. Adarian Murray tells CNN he was just trying to follow officers' orders when they told everyone to come out of the house with their hands up. And he says when he did that, a police officer shot him. The interview comes as his family has filed a new lawsuit in federal court. They're suing the city of Indianola, where the shooting happened, the police chief, and several officers, including the one who shot him. Family is calling for $5 million in damages, and our Nick Valencia joins us now. From there, you sat down with him, you spoke with him, and I wonder what he told you. Well, he's still in a lot of pain, Poppy. He's having trouble sleeping at night, but remarkably, he's in really good spirits for what, you know, considering what he went through. He does say, though, when he's alone for too long with his thoughts, his mind trails off uh, to dark places about how much worse it could have been. Earlier, he sat down with me to talk about what happened. God will do what he said. As he laid in his mother's arms, bleeding out from a gunshot wound, 11-year-old Adarian Murray was so convinced he was going to die, he began to pray to God and sing gospel songs. I think like, like I'm going, going to die. Tell, tell my whole family, tell my teacher, I say, I say I'm sorry for, for what I did. did. On May 20th, Adarian's mom told him to call 911 for help after the father of one of her other children showed up at their Mississippi home at four in the morning. Nikayla Murray said when the Indianola police responded, she opened the door to an officer who already had his gun drawn. He said, said everybody come out with your hands up. I, then I came running inside the living room. It then, then I remember I heard the big bang. And I was just remember holding my chest. Indianola police say the officer was Sergeant Greg Capers. Murray says he shot a Darian once in the chest, seriously injuring the boy. CNN has made repeated attempts to get comment from Capers, but he has not responded. Darian's mother says he developed a collapsed lung and suffered fractured ribs and a lacerated liver due to the gunshot wound. He spent days in the ICU at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, needing a ventilator to breathe. It came right here. More than a week since the shooting, he is remarkably in good spirits, but says sometimes when he's alone with his thoughts for too long, he has nightmares. Sometimes I can see myself laying inside the coffin. I'm all my thoughts at night, my only ones. And sometimes I think people are watching me. But my main thought is me dead. I'm so overfilled with joy to have my child that I don't 
have time to be angry. I trust in the law that they will make the right decision. You know, my main concern is my son right now. The Murray family and their attorney, Carlos Moore, have filed a federal lawsuit against the city of Indianola, its police chief, and several officers, including Capers. They're seeking $5 million in damages. If anyone who's ever been a victim of excessive force deserves to be compensated, it's Adaria Murray. He trusted the police. He called the police to come to the aid of his mother, and he turns around and gets shot by the cop he called to rescue them. If that officer was here, sitting right here across from you, what would you want to tell him, Adarian? Why did you do it? I could have lost, lost my life all because of you. I want you terminated for what you did to me. As for what's next, this incident was captured on body camera. The family and the community has demanded the release of that body camera. This case, however, has been taken over by the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, and they tell me that they won't release the footage until their investigation is done. Poppy, Erica. Okay. Nick Valencia, thank you for the reporting and for sitting down with them. It's remarkable to you hear bet. from Incredible an 11-year-old. Yeah, very mature, yeah. clearly. We'll see you in this morning. Continues right now. some late signs of progress, but also the criticism House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is facing. McCarthy has lost some trust in how this has been happening. we got to re-look at how our leadership structure is in place. It is the largest savings of $2.1 trillion we've ever had. The Republican governor of Florida making his first official stop as a presidential candidate in Iowa. Now it seems that they're going all in on Iowa. They can't be so short-sighted. This is just part of a broader strategy to contrast him with Trump. We also recognize there are a lot of voters just aren't going to ever vote for him. 50-year-old Robert Bowers is accused of killing 11 worshipers in October of 2018. The SWAT officer asked, why are you doing this? The response was, quote, all Jews need to die. Jews are killing our kids. The rise of anti-Semitism, the third higher than the incidents tracked last year. The Ukrainian capital is bracing for more drone strikes after the Kremlin blamed Ukraine for a drone attack on Moscow. This is putting pressure on him and he's trying to control the narrative. Showing an ability to attack behind enemy lines, even on the Russian homeland, in advance of this highly anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive. China will have a permanent human presence in space, potentially even longer than the ISS. We cannot cede our leadership to China when it comes to space. We need you, NASA. The space race, China is in it, and they say they are in it to stay. As you can see, there is a lot going on this morning. We are so glad you're with us on CNN this morning. I'm joined by my friend Erica Hill. Good morning. Good morning, my friend. A lot to get to. Let's start here. Developing overnight, the Kremlin says the situation has become alarming as Ukraine ramps up its attacks on Russian soil. That is what Russia is saying. Ukraine is denying that. These are photos of the aftermath of shelling in the border city. And this is new video of a Russian oil refinery erupting into flames after it was allegedly hit by a drone. Ukraine has been bracing for Russian retaliation after a wave of drones hit Moscow. Vladimir Putin has accused Ukraine of trying to frighten Russians with the attacks. The Ukrainians have denied all involvement in any of this. Our senior international correspondent Fred Plekton is live on the ground in Kyiv. What's interesting, Fred, is despite all of what has been happening there mm -hmm. in Russia, it's been quiet in Kyiv overnight. 
Yeah, it's been quiet in Kiev overnight, uh, Poppy, and, and it, it was the first quiet night really in several days. So that's certainly something where no matter what the reason is, the folks here on the ground will certainly take it because I think for a lot of people it was becoming quite unnerving to be woken up pretty much every single night with Russian drones overhead and then missile strikes during the morning hours or during the day. But you're absolutely right. It's unclear what is behind this. There's certainly a lot of speculation here on the Kiev side. Some saying that maybe Russia is sort of retooling and reloading its arsenal. One of the things uh, that, uh, that they're talking about is that possibly new Shahed drones might be brought in place. Of course, those are the ones that the Russians often send here to the Ukrainian capital. But one thing um, the, the Southern Command of Ukraine's armed forces was saying is they say for a long time there also haven't been any sea-launched attacks either by Russian cruise missiles, for instance. So that's certainly something that the Ukrainians are also looking out for as well. One thing that I sort of picked on, uh, up on before we went to, to air here is also the spokesman for the Kremlin just a couple of minutes ago, really. He said that uh, the Russians believe after this drone attack that happened in Moscow, he said... He believes they, meaning whoever was behind that drone attack, are trying to provoke Russia so they will carefully consider their next move. Maybe that's also one of the reasons why the Russians haven't shot back immediately, but really very difficult to say. Nevertheless, the column is certainly something many people here are welcoming. And then the strikes in, in the Belgorod region in Russia that left four people injured. What yeah. should we take from that? Some are pointing to that as the beginning of the Ukrainian yeah. counteroffensive. Mm hmm. It could it could very well be a sign of that or part of that. It was quite interesting because I was able to speak to a, uh, an advisor to the presidential administration here um, at the end of last week. Actually, he said, look, some of the things that you're seeing, that is already part of uh, the buildup to the counteroffensive, if you will. Some of it might be diversion. Nevertheless, one of the things that we're seeing, not just in Belgrade, but in other places as well, is that the Russians certainly are under pressure on the borderland and in their homeland as well. In Belgrade, you had several people who were injured in that small village of Shebekino, where I, I was actually in that village in, uh, in February of last year when the Russians started their invasion. It's a very small civilian village, but it is very close to the town of Belgorod, which is an important military hub for the Russians. So that's certainly also something to keep in mind as well. Then you had uh, those alleged possible drone attacks on refineries and also in the Bryansk region. That's a little bit further north in Russia. The Russians are saying that they took down several drones as well. So you can feel as that a possible counteroffensive might be looming, the Russians increasingly under pressure in their homeland as well. Reflect in live in Kiev. Thank you very, very much. And in just a few minutes, we'll speak with the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko. A big day ahead on Capitol Hill as the White House, as the House rather, prepares to vote on that debt limit deal. The bill narrowly cleared its first major hurdle last night. Mr. Norman. No. Mr. Norman, no. Mr. Roy. No. Mr. Roy, no. Two hardline Republicans on the powerful House Rules Committee tried but failed to block that bill from advancing to the floor. Now, Speaker Kevin McCarthy is trying to rally support for his deal with President Biden as he faces a growing GOP revolt and the looming threat now of being ousted. CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill. Bottom line this morning is does McCarthy have the numbers that he needs, Lauren? Well, Republicans and Democratic leadership, they're all confident they are going to be able to get the votes to pass this tonight. The first hurdle is going to be a vote on the House floor to pass the rule. Traditionally, the majority would be responsible for getting that across the finish line. But there is concern, given the fact that there are a number of members of the House Freedom Caucus who have said that they can't support this bill, that perhaps they might need some Democratic support to get that over the finish line. We are told that they do expect that Democrats are going to jump in 
in and make sure that that rule passes. After that, there will be the final vote on this legislation in the House of Representatives. And, you know, it's going to be an interesting moment because this will be a coalition of the members in the middle. This is a rare moment on Capitol Hill when you have so many bills that pass along party lines. This is sort of that time where this was a deal negotiated by Biden and McCarthy and Despite the fact that they may lose some members on the fringes of their party, they do feel confident that they are going to have the votes that they need tonight to pass this out of the House. After that, it goes to the U.S. Senate, where eventually we expect that the votes will be there as well. The big question is how quickly the Senate is going to be able to move. But I asked the Republican whip yesterday, John Thune, if the votes were going to be there. He said yes, that he does believe there are going to be at least nine Republicans. That means if all the Democrats are they're unified, they're going to have the votes to get this out of the Senate as well. Again, just a critical question of how quickly the Senate is going to be able to move before that June 5th deadline. Yeah, to say the clock is ticking would be an understatement here. Lauren, appreciate the reporting. Thanks. This morning, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis beginning day two in Iowa for the launch of his presidential campaign at a kickoff event with a few hundred supporters yesterday. DeSantis touted his record in Florida. He launched attacks on former President Trump, interestingly, without ever mentioning him by name. Jessica Dean is on the campaign trail in Des Moines, Iowa with more. Iowa with more. This is sort of the beginning of distinguishing himself from his former, can I say former ally, President Trump, now rival? I think... I think that, yeah, a very accurate depiction of the situation, Poppy. And it's now on Governor DeSantis and his team to really create this contrast between himself and the former president without making it all about the former president. And last night, we saw him here in Iowa on his first trip to Iowa as a presidential candidate. He talked to supporters at this church just outside of Des Moines, where he didn't implicitly and directly go after former President Trump. But when he talked to the media afterward, he had plenty to say. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis kicking off his White House bid on Tuesday. It's great for me to report that our great American comeback starts by sending Joe Biden back to his basement in Delaware. Making his first campaign stop in Iowa, a state set to give an early glimpse into whether Republican primary voters can move on from former President Donald Trump. If you don't win. There is no substitute for victory. We must put an end to the culture of losing that has infected the Republican Party of recent years. The governor notably did not mention the former president by name in his kickoff address. At the end of the day, leadership is not about entertainment. It's not about building a brand. It's not about virtue signaling. It is about results. But as the Trump campaign steps up its attacks on the Florida governor, DeSantis made clear his rebuttals to those criticisms while taking questions from the press after his speech. He used to say how great Florida was. Hell, his whole family moved to Florida under my governorship. Appearing confident that voters would reject Trump's attacks on his former ally in Florida. Now he's attacking me over some of these disagreements. But I think he's doing it in a way that the voters are going to side with me. And taking indirect jabs at the former president himself. I don't need someone to give me a list to know what a conservative justice looks like. All while summing up where he thinks his real fight lies. I'm going to focus my fire on Biden, and I think he should do the same. He gives Biden a free pass. Um, I'm focusing on Biden.
The first official stop as a candidate, a smoother campaign launch than the glitch-filled Twitter announcement for DeSantis last week. The governor offering familiar attacks against the Biden economy. The Biden administration is doing all it can to make it harder for the average family to make ends meet and to attain and maintain a middle-class lifestyle. And criticizing fellow Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's debt limit deal that's now headed to the House floor on Wednesday. The bill for the massive borrowing, spending and debt and record printing of money by the Fed, that's falling on the American people. Later today, we are going to see the governor all across the state of Iowa. It's a state that he said is very important to his presidential bid. And then we'll see him traveling to other early states, including New Hampshire and South Carolina, to finish out the week. And Poppy and Erica, just to underscore how seriously uh, they are taking the state of Iowa and how important it is, he will be right back here on Saturday for an event with Senator Joni Ernst. Can't stay away. There's a lot. (laughs) There are a lot of great things about Iowa. Indeed, there are. I don't blame him. Thanks. There are. Well, a major ruling has just shielded the billionaire family behind Purdue Pharma from opioid-related lawsuits. What this could mean for the victims seeking settlements are going to hear from one mother who lost her son to this epidemic. Also this, we are getting this morning the bottom line on the debt ceiling deal from the Congressional Budget Office, how it could affect American families. That is ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN this morning. The debt limit deal struck by President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy now heads to the House floor for a full vote after just barely making it out of committee last night. Failure to pass this could mean a U.S. default and the potential for a global financial catastrophe. But a number of Republicans are still not on board. Not all Democrats are on board either. Joining us now is Congressman Mike Lawler, a Republican from New York. He sits on the Foreign Affairs and the Financial Services Committee. And he's gone on the record that he plans to vote yes for this bill. So good morning, Congressman. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Why are you a yes? Well, look, I had three parameters throughout this, that the president and the speaker must negotiate in good faith. We must cut spending and we cannot default. A default was never an option, uh, and it's not an option uh, going forward. Uh, So the objective was to get a bipartisan compromise, uh, which the speaker has secured, uh, and it meets my objectives to to bend the curve here. You know, you think about this, Poppy. When I was a a freshman in college back in 2006, our national debt was about $9 trillion. Today, it's almost $32 trillion dollars. This is unsustainable for the long run. And so what we are doing is bending the curve and starting to put the American economy back on the right trajectory. Uh, And the speaker negotiated a very good deal, uh, given the the fact that we only control one half of one third of the government. Uh, And the fact that he was able uh, to get a deal that included spending cuts, non-defense and non-veteran discretionary spending is below fiscal year 22 levels. That is a significant win uh, and something that, you know, conservatives and Republicans have fought for. Uh, In addition, uh, we're getting permitting reform, NEPA reform, uh, which hasn't been done in over 40 years, uh, and putting constraints on executive spending and overreach. And so I think as we move forward, uh, you know, Republicans need to recognize that the speaker did a phenomenal job negotiating uh, and got us a, a very good package uh, that that really advances the ball forward and sets us up uh, through the appropriations process 
uh, to really work to constrain spend, uh, spending more. The second prong of the three things you wanted that you said you got um, doesn't square with what the Congressional Budget Office says in terms of reduction in spending. The CBO uh, last night, as you know, came out with their analysis and they say, yes, this would reduce the deficit by $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years. But, and this is a big asterisk, changing those work requirements on the cash, TANF assistance and food stamp SNAP actually increases federal spending by $2.1 billion over 10 years. How is that a win for Republicans and the win you say it is on, on spending? Well, if you look at uh, the changes uh, to SNAP and TANF uh, work requirements going forward, uh, states were, were basically rolling over exemptions. They were allowed 12% exemptions and they were rolling it over. Some states were implementing 100% exemptions on work requirements. They are now capped at 8% Eight. going forward. So this is going to be significant savings over the long term that's uh, when it comes to SNAP and TANF. But and, respectfully, and so Congressman, I, that's yep. not what the nonpartisan CBO uh, says because the increase in benefits for homeless and veterans basically undoes the savings you guys got elsewhere. Uh, I, I respectfully disagree with the analysis by the CBO on this. Why? And, uh, because it, it's just not accurate when you look at the fact that we're changing uh, the, the, uh, uh, what the states are allowed to do uh, with respect to uh, giving exemptions. They are now capped at 8%. Some states were giving 100% exemptions on work requirements. So this is a significant change and significant savings over the long haul uh, on SNAP. The objective is to get you, people back working. And, and I think, you know, you look, when these analysis are done, you, when, when you these analysis are done by CBO, they look at it in a snapshot. Okay, they're not looking at things uh, that will happen tomorrow, that will happen the next day. They're not looking at the potential growth in the economy. Look at what we're doing with permitting reform and, and NEPA reform. This is going to significantly shorten the lifespan uh, of a project from potentially 11 years down to two years. That, it, that will boost the economy tremendously and give us more revenues and more potential. So that, I think at the end of the day, when all is said and done here, Poppy, uh, we need to recognize that this is changing the trajectory in Washington. President Biden put forward a budget that would have spent significantly more than the top line number that was just negotiated. This is a win for the American people. What you just laid out is a hope and a lot of assumption on what some of these other aspects of the bill will do. What I'm telling our viewers and, and you is that the Congressional Budget Office, which was, by the way, set up by Congress to do exactly this, to oversee the budget process. It's nonpartisan, as you know, it relies on economists, think tanks. It looks at historical trends. What they're saying is, no, in fact, this increases spending when it comes to TANF and SNAP. And I'm not just pointing to the CBO. Listen to Nancy Mace, your fellow Republican in the House. Here's how she sees it. I don't think it's been an honest uh, display of what the bill does, and it doesn't cut spending, uh, does very little for the deficit, and really, it's D.C. math for two years. Is it not? Uh, respectfully, again, I, I just disagree with my colleague there. Uh, she's entitled to her <clears throat> opinion. Uh, this reduces the deficit by $1.5 trillion, according to CBO's uh, own scoring. Uh, it caps spending at 1%. Uh, 
uh, going forward, which has never happened. So at, at the end of the day, look, is it a perfect deal? No. We have a divided government, and I think people need to get a dose of reality. You know, this idea that you're going to get everything you want out of life, uh, welcome to government. Welcome to adulthood. Uh, you have to negotiate. This was a negotiation. It was a hard-fought negotiation. Remember, uh, the president and Chuck Schumer had a plan that would not allow for any of this and would just be a clean debt ceiling. They thought House Republicans would not be able to pass a bill. We did. Uh, they lost on their bet. And so now we're in a situation where spending... Uh, will be coming down. Uh, and at the end of the day, this is about moving our economy in a better direction. It, and that's what we've accomplished I just, here. I want to move on, but I want to level with the American people. Every time you say that CBO says that it will reduce deficit by $1.5 trillion, you're, le you're leaving out the latter part of their analysis that says those increase in benefits to veterans and homeless will increase it by $2.1 billion. But here is how upset some other members of your party are. Listen to Senator Mike Lee. There's, there's not a whole lot of give here. If this is a quid pro quo, as any negotiation between Republicans and Democrats should be, there's, there's a whole lot of quid and not much quo. And we got kind of screwed here. A number of members of the House Freedom Caucus, I know you're shaking your head. They're not happy with McCarthy at all. And I wonder that some saying they have zero confidence in him. I wonder if you think McCarthy's speakership is at risk. So first of all, uh, a lot of the comments coming from uh, a segment of our party are from folks who never would have voted for a debt ceiling increase, no matter what the deal was. Uh, so I respect their point of view, but, uh, you know, really don't accept the premise of, of their critique. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, the speaker has put uh, the conference uh, in a good position. Uh, we gave him the ability to have a seat at the table and negotiate. And he did. Uh, again, Chuck Schumer is the Senate majority leader. Joe Biden is the president of the United States. If my colleagues wanted a better deal, then maybe we should have run some better candidates in some of these competitive uh, swing states and seats. At the end of the day, uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, is not in jeopardy. Uh, he's done a great job as speaker. He's been severely underestimated uh, by Democrats and by the press over and over and over again. Uh, and he has been able to move legislation through the House. He will get a debt ceiling uh, deal passed today, uh, and he will continue on as Speaker of the House. Let me just end on this. Of course, you uh, became very well known around the country for flipping your seat and, and defeating uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, the then chair of the DCCC, to get your seat in a district that Biden won in 2020, you know, by 60 percent. It's interesting this morning, the publication Roll Call is naming you the number five most vulnerable member of Congress, calling you a top target for Democrats. As you know, there are Democrats in your district already running ads against you. How is that factoring into your decision making on things like this? Not at all. Uh, you know, look, I have 30,000 financial service sector employees that live in my district. Uh, default was never an option. Uh, to me, as I said, you know, the, the cost of living, the affordability factor, that's why I ran for office to begin with. We need to bend the curve here in Washington. That's what we're doing. Uh, and I'd remind you, you know, President Biden came to my district uh, just a few weeks ago mm -hmm. uh, and you know, we had a very good conversation. I told him he needed to negotiate with the speaker. We needed to cut spending. Uh, and the president said, you know, I'm somebody he could work with. So the ads, you know, that are being run by the Democrats 
uh, obviously uh, don't comport with where the president stands on this. Congressman Mike Lawler, thanks. Come back soon. Thanks a lot. All right, Erica. Police making two arrests in connection with that mass shooting at a boardwalk in Hollywood, Florida. We have new details this morning on the suspects. Also, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky setting a date for his long-awaited counteroffensive on the heels of a deadly raid on the capital of Kyiv. We'll speak with Vitaly Klitschko, that's the mayor of Kyiv, next about what he's doing to protect his city. This morning, Ukraine is bracing for retaliation from Russia after the Kremlin claimed Ukraine is responsible for the eight drones unleashed on an affluent region of Moscow Tuesday. Ukraine has denied any involvement. Uh, this also follows an overnight bombardment on the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv, killing at least one person. Here's some new video just into CNN. So you can see here, uh, missile debris falling from the sky, nearly hitting a bus. Joining us now is the mayor of Kyiv, Vitaly Klitschko. Good to have you with us this morning, Mr. Mayor. Uh, you know, we've been speaking with our correspondent, Fred Pleitkin. I know you know, you know Fred as well, um, who was saying it had been a somewhat quiet night in Kyiv, the first in several nights. The Kremlin uh, spokesperson has said that, look, they're now trying, that these drone attacks in Moscow are trying to provoke Russia. Ukraine has denied involvement, but basically there's some reassessment happening on Russia's part. Are you concerned about what that could mean for your city? Uh, I'm concerned because the last uh, last week is was a terrible week. It's uh, uh, last four days. Is, uh, every day, Russians send rockets, uh, missiles to our hometown, a kamikaze drone, and uh, two people died, and uh, almost 20 uh, people injured, and a uh, couple of buildings, apartment buildings, was destroyed, and uh, it's people uh, spent. Uh, many many hours in shelters in uh, in safety place and right now actually um, uh, people nervous uh, but uh, thank you it's uh, uh, was not, uh, the attack was not successful for Russia because uh, we shoot down uh, almost uh, every, every everyone kamikaze drone everyone missiles uh, but uh, some part of uh, rockets uh, fall down and destroy the buildings. You talk about people being understandably nervous in Kyiv. Just give us a sense of what is it like on a day-to-day -day basis for people more than a year now into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, uh, it's difficult to explain. It's, yes, of course. Uh, my opinion is the Russians send the uh, missiles to our hometown. They try to bring the depressive mood to the people. People have to be nervous and the people have to take the cares and uh, um, uh, to leave the city to uh, as refugees uh, spend the time much more safety place outside of the country. Uh, Russians uh, need uh, Ukraine without us, without Ukrainians. It's no explanation was the reason, but uh, instead depression, people very angry, very angry and ready to stay and ready to defend our homeland. They want to stay, as you say, they want to defend uh, the homeland. Have there been any talks, given the recent increase in attacks that you just mentioned, about potential evacuation? 
no, it's we doesn't talk about evacuation. Uh, thank you for the support uh, and the missile systems. What we receive from United States, from our partners, uh, Patriot systems uh, actually work pretty well and shoot down air rockets. Uh, also, the Russian super rockets Kinjal, which uh, Putin pr uh, present as uh, super weapon. Uh, it's uh, nobody can uh, shoot down the rockets, but uh, reality is totally different. President Zelensky has said there's a date set now for this counteroffensive we've heard so much about. What are you anticipating from that counteroffensive? Uh, yes, of course, uh, we expect offensive. Uh, right now, we collect the weapons from our partners, and right now, uh, we are much better protected. Uh, it's uh, much more stronger than a couple of months ago, than a year ago. Uh, yes, of course, uh, it's uh, very important in the battle. Uh, um, it's uh, spirit and uh, will to win, but uh, weapons play a very important role, and that's why thousand times. Thank you very much for defensive weapons. It's critical, life important for us. And we expect in the next couple of weeks uh, uh, offensive uh, from uh, our forces. Uh, everybody expect that. The more information I can give you, because it's not my part of mm -hmm. responsibility, is question to Zelensky or uh, General Command Resolution. When we see these other attacks uh, happening, even attacks that we learned about overnight um, in Belgorod, what is the message that that sends to your city? What does it say to the people in Kyiv? Uh, can you repeat the question, please? Sorry. With reports of attacks in the Belgorod region, what is the message you think that that sends to your city, to residents in Kyiv? Uh, so we received the, uh, just uh, bad messages from Russian Federation. They uh, every day explain about uh, uh, worst case scenarios. Uh, they want to occupy Ukraine. They never expect Ukraine as independent countries uh, 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 and to see Ukraine as part of Russian Federation. I tell uh, to everyone, we see the future of our homeland as part of European family, as part of democratic world and for what we're fighting, right? We're fighting uh, for that. Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko, appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you. New this morning, tension between the United States and China escalating again. Here's what we know. A Chinese fighter jet intercepted an American spy plane over the South China Sea. And after that, the U.S. military says China carried out an unnecessarily aggressive maneuver. Those are the, the words of the Pentagon against an American plane that was conducting uh, basically routine operations in international airspace. The spokesperson for China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs says, quote, the U.S. has posed a serious danger to Chinese national sovereignty and China will continue to take necessary measures to resolutely defend its sovereignty and security. That coming from the Chinese government. Also, this just into CNN. Mm -hmm. uh, news here this morning. Uh former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who, of course, first ran for president in 2016, we've learned, does plan to announce his candidacy for the 2024 race. That is set to happen next Tuesday, according to sources familiar with his plans. Christie, who's been outspoken, maybe that's putting it mildly, against Republican frontrunner Donald Trump, set to make that announcement at a town hall at St. Anselm College in New Hampshire. Of course, a big deal, given how close he was once to Trump, that he worked on the transition, et cetera. Absolutely. And what his lane's going to be is going to be really interesting. Is he going to get in sort of the culture wars lane of DeSantis? 
Is he going to get into the not culture wars lane of Anissa Hutchinson, or are you expected to announce um, Chris Anunu? It, it will be interesting to see. And, and if it is in that other lane, is there someone who can really make that a viable lane at this point? Yeah, fascinating. This. Uh, lots to happen. Uh, meantime, former First Lady Rosalind Carter diagnosed with dementia, and it's a condition that you may well be familiar with. Perhaps someone in your family, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, is going to join us to discuss how friends and family can help when they are faced with this common illness. Also, watch this. <laughs> wow. Car in Georgia flying off the back of a tow truck, how it happened and how the driver survived. It's ahead. Welcome back. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter has been diagnosed with dementia. The Carter family put out a statement, and here's what they say, that she continues to live happily at home with her husband, enjoying spring in Plains, Georgia, and visits with loved ones. So how many other families are touched by diagnoses like these? A lot. Yeah. Maybe your family. It hits so many people. Joining us now is our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, good morning. Good morning. 95 years old. Good morning. How surprising or not surprising is this? Yeah, I mean, she was, you know, known to be pretty healthy. I mean, you know, we right. followed, obviously, her and President Carter for, for years. President Carter, a lot of people have known about his melanoma diagnosis, but she was generally pretty healthy. It is a risk factor age uh, for dementia. We only know that she has dementia. We don't know specifically what type of dementia, but if you look overall, once you get beyond 65, that's when the likelihood of being diagnosed goes up. It's not inevitable by any means, but about one in 10 people over the age of 65 are ultimately diagnosed with Alzheimer's type dementia, for example. But as you can see there, as you get older than that then, um, 75 to 84, it's a higher percentage. And then the highest, 85 plus, um, she's 95 years old. Um, it sounds like she was doing pretty well until recently, so I don't know how precipitous a, a decline this was. But age is the biggest risk factor overall, especially for Alzheimer's dementia. There are other things as well, family history, race, if you've had poor heart health, which sounds like she did not, traumatic brain injury in the past, again, sounds like she did not. But those can be risk factors. So I guess um, not that surprising given her age, mm. but keep in mind, again, pretty healthy up until recently. Yeah. And, and, and how do you spot these signs? How do you know, for example, if there is someone in your family, how can you tell if yeah. it's dementia versus simply just getting older and being forgetful? This is probably the question, you know, I think we get more than any other is, you know, are there just sort of age-related changes that happen over time versus things that would be more conclusively something that indicates dementia? And it can be challenging. Uh, you know, if you look at um, just typical age-related change, I try to make a list for you of things that sort of separate the two. Alzheimer's dementia, um, forgetting the name of a family member, someone you know well, versus typical age-related changes, forgetting the name of an acquaintance. That, that's different. Uh, trouble finding the right word. That might be something that's more typical. But if you're having trouble suddenly naming a very familiar object, um, you get the idea here of, of the differences. The way we often think about it in the medical world is at the point that it starts to interfere with your daily life, your ability to actually conduct your activities of daily living, that's when there's a, there's a concern that this could be actually dementia. Alzheimer's dementia, for example. 
it can be difficult to diagnose. There can be many things that mimic it as well. So you've got to sort of just be certain about that, which I'm sure her doctors have done. I think for anyone who is a family member suffering from dementia, you want to know how you can help. What should you do? What should you not do? Right? Are there even treatments yep. that are somewhat effective to help them along the way? No cure, but yeah. what can we do? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the, one of the first things, and I say this as, as someone who's a, who's a brain doc, um, you, you do want to be certain of the diagnosis, and it can be challenging, but there are many things that can mimic uh, dementia as well. People who have hearing loss, for example, many times that is confused with a dementia diagnosis. It's not that they're not remembering things, it's that they didn't hear those things in the first place. It may sound very obvious, but you want to rule out other things first. You also um, you know, uh, want to make sure someone stays in familiar surroundings, and you can look at the, the benefit of medications. There have been a couple of new medications that have been approved. Uh, more than a decade we went without new medications, so that's kind of a pretty big deal. But there's also certain medications that people take that may be worsening their symptoms as well. So thinking about adding certain medications, but also eliminating certain medications. I think in terms of the interactions that someone has with someone who has dementia, now that the diagnosis has been confirmed, you're doing everything you can to try and slow down the progression. These are simple things. I, I wrote about this in, a, in my book. It comes from the Alzheimer's Association. But you got to have, have patience. Don't interrupt. Try and ask yes or no questions more than anything else. And again, give visual cues, things that keep someone in familiar surroundings. As soon as the surroundings become less familiar, it's going to worsen often the symptoms that someone might be experiencing. Such great, such great points and so helpful, I think, for, for so many people who are struggling with this. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, always thank appreciate you. it, my friend. Thank you. Thinking of Rosalind and you. former President Carter and their family. All right, ahead, the billionaire family behind Purdue Pharma in a $6 billion settlement means they'll now be protected from civil lawsuits over their role in the opioid epidemic. We're joined next by a mother who lost her son to that crisis. What she thinks of the settlement. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A historic ruling in the legal battle over the opioid crisis. A federal appeals court in New York ruling the Stackler family will be immune from any current or future lawsuits. That's in exchange for a $6 billion settlement. Now, the Sackler's company, Purdue Pharma, first introduced the opioid drug OxyContin in the 1990s and promoted it as non-addictive. Less than 1% of patients taking opioids actually become addicted. The rate of addiction amongst pain patients who are treated by doctors is much less than 1%. Since 1999, more than half a million people died from an opioid overdose in the United States, according to the CDC. The Sackler $6 billion settlement will go to funding opioid prevention and treatment. About $750 million of that settlement will be reserved for survivors and family members who lost loved ones to opioid addiction. In a statement yesterday, Purdue Pharma called the ruling a victory and said the settlement is the, quote, best option to help those who need it most, the most fair and expeditious way to resolve the litigation, and the only way to deliver billions of dollars in value specifically to fund opioid crisis abatement efforts. The Sacklers echoed that sentiment, saying they are pleased with the court's decision and described the deal as, quote, critical to providing substantial resources for people and communities in need. Joining us now, the mother of an opioid crisis victim, Didi Yoder, who lost her son Christopher 
at the age of just 21 to this epidemic. She was in court with the Sacklers for the first trial. Also with us, the Attorney General of Connecticut, William Tong, who opposed the immunity deal. It's good to have both of you with us this morning. So, Didi, understandably, I know that yesterday you were still sort of wrapping your head around this settlement, around this deal. How are you feeling this morning? Um, I'm feeling basically relieved and pleased that it has gone through. I mean, of course, nothing is ideal in this sort of situation, um, but I think it is the best that we, we could have gotten. Um, the alternative would have been thousands and thousands of lawsuits that could have spread, gone on for years and years, and um, I just don't think that would have helped anything. Um, I mean, I hate to sound like I'm agreeing with the Sacklers, but um, I do think it, I, I'm pleased that it's happened. Mm-hmm. Mr. Attorney General, when it, when it comes to you, you put out a statement calling the decision both significant and imperfect. Uh, but then you went on to say you recognize you would push this as far as we could. What does this settlement mean for people in Connecticut? What, what will it change in your state? First of all, there's no victory here. And at the end of the day, no amount of money, no amount of justice will make this right for for Didi and her family um, and Christine Gagnon and Liz Fitzgerald in Connecticut and their sons. But at the end of the day, uh, we pushed as hard as we could. This deal, the six billion dollars is 40 percent more than the deal that I opposed and took to court and overturned until the Second Circuit um, reinstituted uh, the $6 billion deal yesterday with its decision. And this $6 billion deal will fund treatment and prevention. It gets the Sacklers out of the opioid business. It shuts down Purdue Pharma. It gave Didi and families like Didi's the opportunity to address the Sacklers and tell them how they wrecked their lives. And it gets money to families like Didi's, uh, fully $750 million or more. And that's what's so important about about this settlement in that it gets money directly to victims and survivors. You know, as the attorney general just mentioned, Didi, you did have the opportunity to address the Sacklers in court. You told them about your son. You told them about what he was prescribed when he was a teenager suffering from sports injuries, which so many parents can relate to, mm-hmm. and what that ultimately did to him. Do you feel that you were heard? Um, not really. Uh, they, I, we... we we're on a Zoom call with them for probably three hours, and I didn't see, they didn't even blink their eyes, basically. I mean, they just sat there. Uh, I really don't know that they heard us. But it still felt good to have that time to address them. Would it make a difference if there was a direct apology, if there was a direct acknowledgement? I, I don't think they have any credibility, so I don't know that it, it would mean anything to me. I mean, they've been lying from the very beginning to the whole world about their wonder drug, OxyContin. So um, I don't think I would believe that. Mm -hmm. There's my Chris. (laughs) In terms of, um, you know, Mr. Attorney General, you talked about what this will do in terms of treatment, uh, in terms of what will happen in the state of Connecticut and how you were pushing for more Ultimately, there is some some criticism, as I'm sure you're aware, in terms of the funding here. Uh, according to Forbes, and I just want to make sure I get this correct, the Sackler family was worth about $11 billion in 2020. Patrick Radenkeefe, who, of course, uh, wrote the book on the Sacklers, has pointed out that there's so much money that they can, that the return that they can actually earn on that fortune would cover a large chunk of this penalty. 
And so there's talk about yeah. how they could actually be richer at one point in time. How do you address that? Yeah, we, that's why we went so hard after the Sacklers, um, because let's be clear, uh, they tried to use the bankruptcy laws and, and now it appears have successfully used the bankruptcy laws to shield themselves. But the Sacklers are not bankrupt. No Sackler will have to sell a boat or a car or a home or a piece of art or a piece of jewelry while, while people still continue to die here in Connecticut and across the country. But since I've become attorney general, not just um, this settlement of $6 billion, but together we've put together settlements totaling more than $50 billion, which will return hundreds of millions of dollars to Connecticut. And most of that money will go to funding treatment, prevention and addiction science in Connecticut and across the country. In terms of how that funding will be used, um, this part of the fight may be over for you, Didi, but I know that your battle actually continues in honor of, in memory of your son, Chris. This is a large part of your work now is ensuring that this doesn't happen to other families. Absolutely. Um, I'm an ambassador for a nonprofit group called Chatterproof. And um, these, Gary Mendel, who started Chatterproof, also lost his son the same way. And they, we spend a lot of time with um, passing legislation, um, um, helping the community, um, developing um, uh, services for addiction treatment. Um, so, yes, there's a lot to be done. And I, I do also want to add that even though the Sacklers cannot be, are not civilly, can't be held civilly liable, they can still be held criminally liable. And <laughs> I think they should be. Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing stopping anybody from holding them criminally liable. I mean, they caused or they caused the death of over 500,000 people. Um, so it just, I don't know why that isn't a next step. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, we're just about out of time, but do you see that happening in the future? Look, I, I agree with Didi. Um, they should go to jail. Uh, at the end of the day, in Connecticut, the Attorney General doesn't have criminal authority, um, but we've said over and over again that they should be held accountable. Um, and, and I totally agree with her. Attorney General William Tong, D.D. Yoder, thank you both for being with us this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. CNN This Morning continues right now. Not one Republican should vote for this deal. It is a bad deal. McCarthy has lost some trust in how this has been handled. It seems inescapable to me, given what has occurred and the way he was the steward of Republican unity and he blew it to smithereens. Well, not everyone happy with this deal. Let's see how the vote goes. Yes. Good morning, everyone. We are glad you're with us on CNN This Morning. I'm joined by my friend Erica Hill. And here's where we are. Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, facing a growing Republican revolt as the House prepares to vote on his debt limit deal that he struck with President Biden. We're about to find out if the speaker can pull it off. New video shows a Chinese fighter jet intercepting a U.S. spy plane. The Pentagon accusing the Chinese pilot of being unnecessarily aggressive, forcing the American plane to fly through dangerous turbulence. We're going to ask the White House about it. Also breaking this morning, sources tell CNN former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is going to jump in the race for the White House. He will make it official with an announcement on Tuesday, giving Donald Trump yet another Republican challenger. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now.
And we do begin on the debt limit and the deal. And can it pass? It is a crucial day. We'll see on Capitol Hill. The House is set to finally vote on it after it narrowly cleared a major hurdle last night. Mr. Norman. No. Mr. Norman, no. Mr. Roy. No. Mr. Roy, no. Two hardline Republicans on the very powerful House Rules Committee tried but failed to block the deal from advancing to the floor. They are vowing to continue fighting against it, along with other members of the House Freedom Caucus. Because Joe Biden was in the in a box. He was up against the ropes and we should have held him there and gotten more for the American people than a spending freeze for four trillion dollars. Well, Speaker McCarthy walking a tightrope this morning, trying to rally, of course, support for that bill as he's facing growing dissent among far-right Republicans and that looming threat of being ousted from his job. Time is quickly running out for Congress to prevent a potential default that could tank the economy. Joining us now is the man who is tasked with convincing those Republicans to fall in line to vote for this bill. Congressman Tom Emmer from Minnesota is the majority whip in the House. Sir, good to have you with us this morning. Uh, the big question, which I know you're getting, uh, is where things stand. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise saying last night, despite all this harsh criticism from the party, the caucus is coming together around the legislation. So this morning, do you agree? Do you have the votes? Oh, yeah, it's going to pass today. Uh, a lot of this is uh, fun for the, uh, the media and people who like to watch. Uh, human beings have disagreements. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, the House Republicans know what's at stake. That's one of the reasons that uh, Kevin McCarthy tried to get this done starting the moment this new Congress began. It's one of the reasons that under his leadership, Republicans passed a bill to uh, avoid default more than a month ago. And it took the uh, president, the White House, more than 100 days to actually sit down and start getting serious. This is a uh, great deal for Republicans. Uh, this is a $2.1 trillion cut. Uh, this is a uh, this is a major uh, victory for Republicans you're, and it'll pass today. So you're calling this a major victory for Republicans. Look, the president has been very complimentary about it as well. Um, give us a sense. You're confident it will pass. Can you give us a sense of the numbers this morning? Can you get as high as 150? Uh, we whip for 218 Republicans. That's that'll be our goal to get 218 plus on the Republican side of the aisle to vote for the deal tonight. In terms of where things stand, as you know, the criticism has been loud. It has been consistent from some of the more hardline members of your party. And I just want to share some of those moments that we've been hearing with our viewers, because I want to get your take on some of this. You know, if the bill passes, as we know, this doesn't mean it's, it's the end of the problems, potentially, for Speaker McCarthy. You have Dan Bishop saying he would consider this motion to vacate, saying that the speaker made, in his words, an unrecoverable error. Uh, Chip Roy, spokesman, confirming to CNN that if this deal can't be killed, that they're going to have to reassess and maybe take a look at the leadership arrangement. Do you believe that the speaker's job at this point, that uh, they have gavel, is in jeopardy? Look, I know that uh, those Republican members are great members. Uh, the, the group of Republicans, I, there's a lot of emotion because there's a lot of frustration. 
I mean, they are watching an administration that has driven spending to a level that's caused double-digit inflation. People are paying more at the grocery store, more at the gas pump. It's just harder to get by. Uh, and these people want to get something done for the American people. I understand that they didn't get everything they wanted in this deal, but this is a good deal. I mean, it's a $2.1 trillion cut. It has permitting reform in it. It actually has a provision in it that's going to force the Senate for once <laughs> to start working on appropriations bills. Uh, this is a good first step forward to trying to fix what's been broken in Congress. You're calling this a good first step forward, what's been broken in Congress. There's been a lot made about the fact that, look, if you have unhappy people on both sides, perhaps that is the sign of an actual negotiation and some bipartisan work up there in, down there rather, I should say, in Washington. When you hear words, though, like unrecoverable error from Congressman Bishop, I found it interesting, uh, Douglas Brinkley telling the Washington Post, both sides ultimately blinked, this is what American politics is all about. Do you believe the error that he's referring to was a negotiation? Was both sides coming together and each one having to give a little bit? No, I, I think uh, from uh, Dan's perspective, he's a thoughtful guy and he works very hard at these issues. Uh, he wanted more. He wanted more in the deal. Uh, he wanted uh, some things that uh, dropped out, uh, some additional work requirements. He wanted some additional things when it came to uh, uh, spending cuts. I understand that. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, this deal uh, had Republican priorities in it because, of course, the only people that passed a bill were the Republicans. Uh, it is a good thing that the White House uh, did finally decide to sit down and have a negotiation at the end of the day. This is a $2.1 trillion cut. It is the first step. The next step is going to be the appropriations process. Uh, and then, of course, there's an election uh, next year where I think the issue will be how Republicans would spend your money versus how Democrats would and our national security. That's a winning issue for us. You talk about that cut uh, estimates from the Congressional Budget Office. There is also an estimate that changes to SNAP would actually increase federal spending uh, by about $2.1 billion. Are you concerned about that? Uh, that came out last night. Uh, the math is wrong. Uh, and you say the math look, is flat out we wrong. We need to see their homework on this because. But you, but well, you're okay with the other part of that equation. Just, but the snap part is wrong. Actually, what came out last night, if you'll let me finish, is uh, there are some inconsistencies with their calculations and what they're including and not including. In fact, they're pricing in things that are already happening. So this is a little bit, we, we've had a problem every once in a while with the CBO. For instance, there was a, uh, a motion, a, a vote to eliminate the uh, Department of Education. You're eliminating a 4,000 person department and they said that was gonna cost the federal government money. Uh, we don't just accept what the CBO puts out. We do check their homework. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with the other stuff. The one that just came out last night, uh, there's some, some suspect uh, numbers in there. So when do you think you'll have those checked? Uh, we'll be doing it this morning. It just came out last night. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to hearing more on that. Um, and are you feeling confident in terms of, I know you said you have the numbers, you will have the votes. Can you give us a sense of who you may have been able to bring over to your side? We saw some comments specifically from Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, <laughs> I won't use her words, but she called it a uh, certain type of sandwich. She seems to be now leaning yes. How many others have you been able to convince? Hey, all I'm going to I'm all I'm going to tell you is that uh, we do our job. We make sure that uh, we hear our members concerns. 
We share with them the uh, the accurate details of uh, what is in this uh, legislation so that they can make up their own mind and represent the people that they uh, were sent here to represent. Uh, we're going to have the votes tonight. This will pass. Congressman Tom Emmer, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Well, Thank you. you. Now to Ukraine. Ukraine is on edge this morning as it braces for potential Russian retaliation to a drone strike. Those attacks in Moscow on Tuesday. Ukraine has denied any involvement in those attacks. Of course, the Kremlin is pointing right at Ukraine. And the White House says it is still gathering information. These followed an overnight bombardment on the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, which was the night before. Those killed at least one person. Take a look at this video. Look at that. It's new just into CNN, and it shows missile debris falling from the sky and nearly hitting a bus in Kyiv. Meantime, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says he's landed on a date. He's decided when they will launch that counteroffensive, but he hasn't made that date public. Let's talk about this in a lot of headlines this morning. We're happy to be joined by the National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House, John Kirby. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so the latest we had from last night is that the White House is still gathering information on these attacks in Russia, these drone attacks on Moscow. Ukraine vehemently denying any involvement. Does the White House have an update on that this morning? No, probably we don't. I mean, we're still trying to get uh, information here and, and uh, develop uh, some sort of sense of what happened and uh, and how these uh, how these occurred. But I, I can't tell you that we have any definitive uh, information at this point. OK, let me ask you then, would the White House view it as appropriate if Ukraine was involved in those attacks? We've been clear privately and publicly uh, with the Ukrainians that we don't support uh, attacks on Russian soil. Uh, we are going to continue to give them what they need to defend themselves and defend their territory, uh, Ukrainian soil, but we don't support attacks uh, on, in, in Russia. In terms of those potential attacks, uh, Poppy and I spoke earlier with former Secretary S. Mark Esper. We asked him specifically about depending on whether it was determined that Ukraine was behind them and where some of that equipment may have come from, whether that should change the thinking for U.S. and NATO in terms of weapons. Take a listen to his response. Well, Ukraine has the right of self-defense. And secondly, uh, Russia should not have sanctuary. Russia doesn't get to destroy, uh, kill civilians, rape, murder and pillage all across Ukraine now for 15 months and then cry foul when Ukraine or Ukraine supported or maybe it's anti-Putin groups uh, shoot drones in Moscow. I, I just think that's, uh, that's, uh, that's wrong. That's not right. And I think uh, Ukraine needs to leverage whatever it can with whomever they can at this point to strike legitimate military targets in Russia. Ukraine needs the leverage to strike legitimate military targets in Russia in his estimation. Ukraine has the right of self-defense. The White House doesn't agree. No, of course we agree that Ukrainians uh, have the right to self-defense. My goodness, over the last uh, 15 months, we've been uh, doing very little else other than helping them defend themselves and defend their territory against this Russian aggression. What we have said is we don't want to encourage or enable attacks inside Russia because we don't want to see the war escalate beyond the violence it's already visited upon the Ukrainian people. I think anybody can understand why we'd be concerned about this war uh, expanding into something much bigger than what it already is. And so we have maintained our concerns about attacks on Russian soil. But but we have been nothing but, uh, but generous uh, and fully committed to making sure that Ukraine can defend itself. In fact, Poppy, you're going to continue to see... Uh, drawdown packages and security assistance going to Ukraine uh, right up in, right up through the summertime. And, uh, and that includes in the very near future here. So, I mean, uh, we're very much committed to that. 
I'm joined by my colleague Erica Hill. I know you can't see us both here, but we're <laughs> we're right here. That smart question was was from Erica and 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 her questioning of Mark Esper. Let me ask you this though, just building on this, and then we do want to move on to China uh, with you, but. It appears that, and this is how the New York Times describes it this morning on the front page, that this position that the White House has held that any weapons provided mm -hmm. to Ukraine should not be used to strike Russia. But the Times points to the fact that, and here's what they write, the State Department and the National Security Council both issued statements saying that the United States does not support strikes inside Russia, quote, as a general matter, but nothing that marked, nothing on Tuesday marked the 17th time this month that Russia had struck Kyiv, meaning they think that your language is hedging a bit. Is the White House position changing at all? No, not at all. I apologize, Erica, for, for the mistake <laughs> there. But um, no, no, not, not, not at all. Uh, it, look, we have been very consistent since the beginning of the war. We want to make sure the Ukraine has everything they need to defend themselves. As they get ready to go on the offensive here in the summertime, we want to make sure they have everything they need to do that successfully. But we don't want to see this war escalate beyond what it's already visited again upon the Ukrainian people and the European continent. I think we can all understand that, uh, that if we give Putin what he's claiming this is, a war against the West, a war war against the United States, a war against NATO, there's going to be a whole lot more suffering uh, across the European continent. So we don't want to see this war uh, escalate. Now, now, look, once we provide systems to the Ukrainians, and this is an important point, they get to decide what they're going to do with them. Uh, now, they have given us assurances that they won't use our equipment uh, to strike inside Russia. Uh, but once it once it goes to them, it belongs to them. And that's why respectfully, that sounds like a hedge. It's not a hedge. It is, it's been very consistent since the beginning of the war. This equipment belongs to them. They get to decide how they use it. We don't want them, and we have been nothing. We've been clear privately with them, and we've certainly been clear publicly. Uh, we don't want uh, our systems. We don't want to encourage or enable uh, the attacks inside Russia. Okay. Uh, President Zelensky has said that there is a date now. He has a date for this counteroffensive. Do you have any sense of that timing? I think uh, we're just going to leave it uh, right there. This is uh, President Zelensky's decision to make. He's the commander in chief. He gets to decide uh, where and when he steps off. And, uh, and we don't want to get ahead of him on that. But does the White House know, even if you're not saying it publicly? Uh, we, we have been in touch with our Ukrainian counterparts uh, as they have begun their, their planning for this counteroffensive, uh, and we remain in touch with them. I think I'll just leave it at that. Okay. We want to ask you about China before you go, because we saw this week that the, the Basically, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's counterpart in China declined an invitation to sit down with him at the Security Forum in Singapore. That happened a few days ago. And then now we see Xi Jinping overnight saying that basically his military chiefs should prepare for, quote, the worst case scenarios and prepare for actual combat and practical use. That sounds like a real escalation. Well, that's one of the reasons why we want to be able to have uh, conversations in the military channels with the senior leaders of uh, of the PRC military, as well as uh, at lower levels. I mean, when Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan, one of the avenues of communication that the Chinese cut off uh, was this military to military uh, vehicle here. And that is what you need when you have uh, tensions as high as they are. You want to be able to avoid miscalculations and misunderstandings. Just over the weekend, there was a uh, an unsafe and unprofessional intercept by a, a, a PRC fighter jet with one of our Air Force aircraft over the South China Sea. When you have tensions like this, you want to make sure you can talk. That's why we want to keep the lines of communication open. They're not not very open right now. I think that's clearly concerning to a lot of people. No, no, yeah, they're, they're concerning. They're concerning. They're concerning to us, too. We yeah. agree they're, they're not open and they and we yeah. need to get them open. And that's why Secretary Austin asked for that meeting. No question about it. Really appreciate your time, Admiral Kirby. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. You bet.
Thanks, guys. Okay. Well, the battle is escalating between House Republicans and the director of the FBI. Speaker Kevin McCarthy even threatening to hold Director Ray in contempt. Former FBI Director James Comey is here to discuss. And this just into CNN, the 2024 Republican presidential field getting even more crowded already. Guess who's jumping in? Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie about to make it official on Tuesday. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We have jurisdiction over the FBI, which they seem to act like we do not. I personally called uh, Director Ray and told him he needs to send that document. If he misses the deadline today, I am prepared to move contempt charges in Congress against him. Well, he did miss that deadline, and you just heard from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy yesterday on that. Republicans in Congress are escalating their fight with FBI Director Christopher Wray as he refuses to hand over an internal document they say relates to an alleged scheme involving President Biden. Hours after Speaker McCarthy issued that threat on Fox, the House Oversight Chair James Comer said he will take direct steps now to hold Director Wray in contempt. This comes as Republicans continue their attacks on the FBI and the DOJ. Some House Republicans seeking to defund those agencies, alleging they've been weaponized against conservatives. And newly minted presidential hopeful Governor Ron DeSantis has pledged to fire the FBI director if he were to become president. What does this all mean for not only the FBI, but the country? Joining us now in studio is former FBI Director James Comey. He's the author of this new book that you will see between us, the new crime novel, Central Park West. Good morning, Director. Good morning. Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks for having we'll me. We'll get to the book in a moment. It's thrilling. Keeps you on the edge of your seat. But I have to ask you first to respond to what we just heard from Kevin McCarthy and what the Oversight Chair James Comer and, I should note, uh, Chuck Grassley, Senator Chuck Grassley, will do uh, in terms of holding Director Ray in contempt. Should he be turning over this internal document? I don't know enough about the particular document to say. But well, it's the document. You know what it is. It's, a, it's got many numbers in it, but it essentially outlines what a undisclosed witness or whistleblower told officials. And this would concern the Biden family, these accusations that have um, not been presented with evidence, but from the Oversight Committee, the accusations they've made. Director Ray is a person of principle, and so I'm sure he's trying to ascertain what's the right thing to do, consistent with Department of Justice policy and tradition. And these are the kind of the kerfuffles that blow up every so often in D.C. Now it's ensnared the FBI. It'll pass. It'll pass. Governor Ron DeSantis, as you know, he's running for president. I was struck by what he said about the FBI in this interview he did with Fox News on the night of his announcement. He said, and this wasn't surprising, he said the DOJ and FBI have lost their way. He said they're very partisan. But what was striking to me is what he said about the independence of the FBI or the lack thereof. Here it was. Republican presidents have accepted the canard that the DOJ and FBI are, quote, independent. They are not independent agencies. They are part of the executive branch. They answer to the elected president of the United States. So as president, you have a responsibility to be involved in holding those agencies accountable. Historically, previously until the last few years, uh, it has largely been those on the left who have been critical of the FBI. You were a Republican for most of your life until you say the party left you. Why do you think so many Republicans have turned on the FBI? I think it's largely because Donald Trump and those around him have seen the FBI as a threat. And so they've taken a blowtorch to try and tear down that threat. 
It's really unfortunate. The notion that the FBI is some sort of leftist cabal out to get the Republicans is so crazy. It just shows you how crazy our times are. Take a look. I thought that these numbers were really stunning. First of all, there's a Pew Research poll that shows just the divide in terms of Republicans and leaning Republicans. Only 38 percent now have a favorable view of the FBI for Democrats at 65 percent. And then you talk about Trump. Look at this decline. Gallup showed that in 2014, 62 percent of Republicans had a favorable view of the agency. Now it's 29 percent. What can be done to correct that. And what if it doesn't change? What happens? Well, it will change. The FBI will be fine in the long run. This fever around Donald Trump and the MAGA world will eventually break, but it's become somehow a nutty article of faith that the FBI is out to get Republicans. If you'd asked people 20 years ago whether that would someday be the accusation, they'd say that's nuts. It's nuts, but it will pass. So uh, John Durham uh, released his report, a years-long report, just just days ago, um, and he will testify before the House Judiciary Committee on June 21st at three weeks from today. This was about, under your purview, the the Trump uh, probe vis-a-vis Russia during the 2016 election. His analysis is, and it's different than the inspector general's analysis, by the way, but his conclusion was the FBI never should have launched a full probe of Trump and Russia. And he said that the FBI used raw, unanalyzed, and uncooperated intelligence and essentially a different standard than they used with Hillary Clinton. Do you have any regrets about how you and the team handled that investigation? No, and there's nothing None. new in his report about the FBI. He thinks it ought to have been a prelim investigation and not a full, and the differences would be boring to your, your listeners and your viewers. He agrees that the FBI had to examine this and open an investigation. But not, at, not to the extent it did. And he says that there were different standards used in terms of the probe on Trump and Russia and Hillary Clinton. Yeah. You said on a different network in a recent interview that there are some things you wish you did differently. What are they? Oh, plenty of different things. Uh, from small things to large things. In announcements I made, I don't like the way in which I put things in order. I wish I had entered the encryption debate in a different way. When you look back at a career, you can always find things. But I think the FBI had to open that Russia investigation. People forget, Republicans, we weren't investigating Donald Trump. We were trying to find out if anybody in his world was working with the Russians. Had to do that investigation and did it in a professional way. What we see now, looking at the Trump probes now, specifically the two federal ones led by the special counsel, Jack Smith, Do you expect that the special counsel will recommend charges in either probe? You talked about the Mar-a-Lago documents case as potentially being the most damaging to Trump. Do you expect Jack Smith would recommend charges to the attorney general? I don't know. He's been doing it like a pro, which means I know very little about it, as as do you. And so I I don't know. It strikes me the Mar-a-Lago case is the one most likely to result in criminal charges, but Mm -hmm. we'll have to see. Well, we know very little about it, but some good reporting has told us a bit about it, including the Washington Post last week, as you know, with their reporting that boxes of those classified documents were moved on June 2nd, the day before they knew that FBI officials were coming down to look at the documents. Does that point to obstruction? Maybe. Maybe. I know from having been inside investigations that as good as the reporting is, it can't see what a professional investigation is doing fully. And so we'll just have to wait. The Washington Post profile of you in this book was really, really interesting. And this is what they wrote at the end of one of their multiple reviews of your book. Quote, it seems like everyone in America has been angry with him, you, at some point for his decisions about what to reveal and when. And you've said getting fired is the best thing that ever happened to me. Why? 
Oh, to me personally? Yeah. Because I get to dress in a different way. I get lots of sleep and exercise. But and you had a 10-year term. You only got to serve four years. Oh, yeah. I grieve not having the opportunity to stay with my full term at the FBI. I think I was answering a question about me personally. Okay. It's harder to be FBI director than to be a crime fiction novelist. What do you make of what the Washington Post wrote, that every American has been angry with you at some point for different reasons? Yeah, I, I, I frankly hope it's not fully true, but I've heard a lot of it, and it causes me pain. I it does. wasn't in that business to try and piss people off. But sometimes when you're making decisions, especially in a polarized environment, you can't help but get people upset at you, as Chris Ray, the current director, is discovering. Certainly. He'll be okay in the long run. Someday he'll be dressed in casual clothes <laughs> and getting a lot of sleep. I told you when I was coming to set, and now we're going to talk about the book, that I never thought I would speak with you in, in a T-shirt and, and sneakers. So a much more relaxed life now and the life you see ahead for yourself as a novelist. This book, you've always loved to write. You contributed to your school's literary magazine. So this has sort of been in your blood for a long time. But the plot of this book, which I said is riveting, is a federal prosecutor here in New York. And she, it's a girl, maybe slightly based, a woman based on your own daughter, who is a federal prosecutor. But this is a mob case. And then it's tied with New York City politics and a, and a New York governor. How much of this story is inspired by your work prosecuting the mob and what your daughter is doing? It's a combination. A lot of it is places I've been, cases I did when I was a mob prosecutor. But when I was working on this, my oldest child, my daughter, was on her feet in the same courtroom I prosecuted mobsters in when she was four years old, prosecuting Glenn Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's yep. partner in abusing young girls. And so it had to be a, a woman as the protagonist. And so I could write it, not thinking about me, but thinking about this person I love tremendously, like all my children, so that made it really fun. A lot of women have been a part of this book, not only your daughter, but as I understand it, your wife is your biggest critic, and some of her criticism doesn't come face-to-face. -face. It comes at night when you're asleep in a, in a Google Doc. Thank God. She's also <laughs> my biggest fan. She, I think I hope she would say, yes, yeah, she <laughs> is my... Constructive criticism. Exactly. Loving and devastating at the same time, but she's my partner, and she tells me the truth when it's good and when it's not so good. And luckily, it's often in the form of a Google Doc comment or suggestion, so I can go through the <laughs> stages of denial before I accept that she's right. But she helps you come up with the plots, right? Yeah, she's our idea person. She has great story vision. And my job is to write it and then get good feedback from people who love me about whether it's good Next or not. Next one is already almost done? Yeah, in draft. It's out for loving feedback with family members. Loving feedback, always. Director Comey, appreciate you weighing in on the news, your career and congratulations on your new book. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Good to have you. Erica. Chris Christie is set to jump into the 2024 race for the White House as its GOP field continues to get more crowded by the day. How could that Christie hat shake things up? We'll discuss. This just into CNN, we are learning former New Jersey Republican Governor Chris Christie will announce his bid for the White House next week. CNN correspondent Omar Jimenez joining us now with details. So we know the announcement is next week. What more do we have in terms of details this morning? Yeah, so as we understand, I'm hearing from, from multiple sources that Tuesday is the day that he is going to announce a bid for 2024 White House, at least the, the primary. Uh, there's a big field here. Uh, but <laughs> yes. but I've, I've heard from just speaking to many people in his camp, he really feels his lane is not around Trump, but specifically through Trump. So one of their main priorities is to try and get on that debate stage because Christie feels that he will be the one to actually have the message that breaks through, a, you know, again, a crowded cast 
uh, that we're seeing already. And I did just get uh, notification of some of an event notification for next week. Curiously, the same day uh, as the announcement, which is, uh, as we understand, set to take place in New Hampshire uh, in a town hall format at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College. And again, he becomes just the latest Republican to jump into this race and try to take down the person we've seen lead the polls to Mm -hmm. this point. President Trump. That pool is very crowded uh, this yes, morning. It is. Uh, yes, it Omar, is. Omar, appreciate it. Thank you. Of course. Thank you very, very much. Joining us now to dig a little deeper, Axios Senior Contributor Margaret Taleb. Margaret, good morning. Good morning. I keep thinking about the book Bear Hunt. Did you ever read this to your kids? <laughs> We're going on a bear hunt. We're going hunt. on yes. a bear hunt. You can't go around it. You can't go over it. You got to go, go through, through it. it. It sounds like Chris Christie's trying to go through Trump. How do you do that? Well, uh, you know, he, he does have, I guess, the benefit of some practice from the last time around eight years ago. But we're seeing a couple of things. One is that this field is getting increasingly crowded. That could help Trump. At least that's the conventional wisdom, and it makes sense. But I think what you're seeing, Christie has a much harder path because the party has changed so much just mm-hmm. since the 2016 campaign. Uh, the core of the Republican Party, the base moving much farther to the right, being uh, much more targeted towards the working class, the anti-elite, the anti-college, the anti-business to some extent, the anti-chamber of commerce, the anti-globalist. Uh, Chris Christie, uh, a coastal governor, uh, he's an institutionalist. Remember, he was once a U.S. attorney and he uh, believes in American business. So it's a harder path. But I think if you look at both what Christie and, and Governor DeSantis are doing, they are both pledging to punch and counterpunch Donald Trump. They're doing it in really different ways. Christie wants to be talking to what he calls an exhausted majority. He's talking about not just Republicans, but independents and maybe some conservative Democrats. Ron DeSantis is aiming to the right of Donald Trump, trying to push the party further to the right, trying to say uh, Trump is too woke. Look at some of his uh, policies on, uh, you know, criminal prison reform and criminal justice policy. So they're really, really different approaches to punching Trump. But at least uh, now we're seeing a couple of uh, brand name contenders in the GOP primary saying they're not going to shy away from attacking the former president. So he's not going to shy away from attacking him. I'm sure we'll hear a lot about, we will see all of his comments from his evolution over the years, over the last eight years or so, for, against, against, for. When we look at that lane, though, Margaret, that you're painting there, this lane of Chris Christie wanting to go after the former Republican Party, essentially former Republican voters, the one that used to be, as well as independents, perhaps some Democrats. Is there that lane? I mean, it's a big question, and you're not seeing a lot of other GOP contenders or would-be contenders uh, courting that lane. You know, you're seeing Tim Scott, uh, also new to the race, talk about he wants to have an optimistic campaign. Chris Christie wants it to be a joyful campaign. But who are the voters you're trying to bring in? Are you trying to uh, tell people who actually are now independents, hey, switch back to the Republican Party to vote in your state's primary? Are you trying to reactivate a nascent part of people who are still registered as Republicans but are like, I don't, I don't really know what's going on here, and say there's still a home for you. Those seem to be the two lanes. If you're going to uh, t- tie Trump to Vladimir Putin, if you're going to say that, uh, if you're going to focus on January 6th and trying to overturn, you know, uh, a democratically uh, elected election, um, that is not a brand that's synonymous with an appeal to the base. Uh, but Christie's bet, I think, is that there are actually still a lot of Republicans or voters who lean Republican who are more attracted to his message, but they need an alternative to rally around. It is a long shot. It is not an easy path. It's also just so interesting to see him running 
through, that's what mm -hmm. he's going to do, Trump, when he was the first real, really establishment Republican yeah. to legitimize Trump in 2016. Quite a shift. Thank you, Margaret. Thanks. Overnight, the SpaceX capsule carrying a former NASA astronaut and three paying customers comes home. Returns from the International Space Station. Look at this splashing down in the Gulf of Mexico. We'll talk about the latest on the space race with the renowned astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's here next. Love it. All that applause because, well, this is your morning moment splashdown. A SpaceX capsule carrying a former NASA astronaut and three paying customers came home from the International Space Station, splashing down off the coast of Panama City. It is only the second all-private mission to the ISS. That, as a Chinese rocket launched from Earth to their own space station yesterday, carrying the country's first civilian astronaut into orbit. Let's talk about all this and a lot more with world-renowned astrophysicist and director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History here in New York City, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, also the author of Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. Good morning. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you. Let's, let's start with, we've been talking about China a lot this morning um, and now in space too, obviously in the space race, launching uh, and working to, to uh, put more pressure, I suppose, on NASA to put humans uh, on course to walk the moon by 2025, two years away. Does this increase the pressure on NASA, what well, China's doing? Well, it certainly doing? does, of course. How could we think not? Right. And just look at the, the rebirth of our interest in returning to the moon with the Artemis program, which, by the way, not everyone knows yet. I mean, some people know, of course, that Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. And so NASA was like woke early in this effort. <laughs> Be careful throwing that word around. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. But the, uh, you know, we could have stayed on the moon in 1972. We didn't. We could have gone back in 1980 or 1990 or 2000 or 2010. No, we have rejuvenated our lunar space program right around the time when China says mm. that's what they want to do. So who are we kidding? If we're going to say, oh, we're just doing it because it it's time to do it again. No, we, there are forces operating out there that rival a little bit what we felt back in the space race with the Soviet Union. So yeah. that's just the reality. To stand in denial of it would be naive. So as we wait, as we watch for all that to play out, as if we see if it will happen by 2025 in, in terms of the moon, um, I was really fascinated, the James Webb Telescope. Oh. I love it anytime. It is all we that. We get a little nugget, all that and <laughs> it more. It is all that and more. Um, so now it's observed a donut of water, as I understand it, around Saturn, beyond the rings. What does this actually mean? What is the donut of well, water? Just to, just to say, the search for water is a major objective of NASA because every place on Earth we find water, we find life, even the Dead Sea. It was called the Dead Sea because no one then had microscopes or the James Webb Space Telescope. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so if, you, if we know that life and water go together and we want to find life elsewhere, you're going to look for water any place you can find it in any shape, form, always. So these outer planets, so uh, not only Jupiter, but Saturn as well, there are conditions there that can support water. And in many cases, it's frozen on the surface of moons, but then it's liquefied 
inside mm -hmm. because the, the moons are stressed by the tidal forces of, of the main planet and other moons. And it's like when you, you hit a, a racquetball, uh, they say, well, let's warm up the ball. You're literally warming up the ball by stressing it and popping it back into shape. That's what's happening with moons in the outer solar system, which renders what would otherwise be frozen water liquid. So when you find water in the outer solar system, um, it, it, it widens the net that you cast in your search for life. Can we talk about what we're seeing in New York that apparently everyone knew about except for me? <laughs> You got to get out more. You got to get out more. That is the truest statement of the morning. You know, yeah. So that thing, there it is. Yes, Manhattan Henge. Okay. Yes. So coin that term. What's that? What is it? Yeah. I mean, we know it's the sun. I coined that term. Yeah. And it's now in the Oxford English Dictionary. I'm happy to say. Yeah. It's like an official. It's not official until that happens. This is not just the Urban Dictionary in the Oxford. Exactly. Exactly. Because anything's in the Urban Dictionary. But on two occasions a year, around Memorial Day, and I time this up with baseball's All Star Break. That's what I found these on the calendar. On those two occasions, the sun sets exactly on the grid of Manhattan. And it makes for spectacular sunsets. Sunsets are beautiful regardless. Mm -hmm. Now you frame them with the steel and glass structures of the city. Thousands of people now crowd the streets. And I'm delighted to announce we finally stopped traffic for reasons other than Con Ed digging holes <laughs> <laughs> or police activity. So if the universe can call to us that way, it's just a reminder that we are participants in the great unfolding of cosmic events. Great unfolding it. of cosmic events. I love that. I love it. <laughs> um, before you go, since you have a term in the Oxford English Dictionary. I don't mean to brag or anything. Can we also that. get your best? <laughs> Humble brag. This is CNN This Morning, because you were doing it in the commercial, and it was pretty darn great. Oh, this is CNN This Morning. There you go. That's all you need to know. <laughs> Hired. Hired. All right. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, what a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Welcome thank to you. the universe. <laughs> also great. Even, even better. Also great. Uh, all right. What are you going to do when you come back tomorrow? <laughs> thank you. All right. Thanks very much. Fiery new comments from seven-time NBA All-Star Scotty Pippen criticizing his former Chicago Bulls teammate Michael Jordan why he says Jordan was, quote, a horrible player? Wow. Got to be some context in that I one. I think so. Plus, watch this. Nope, not a remake for the Dukes of Hazard. nothing for Grand Theft Auto. An actual car, as you see it there, sort of catapulting itself off the back of a tow truck. Stay tuned for what happened next. Thank you. That was so good. Well, this one had our control room gasping, I am told. New video this morning shows a shocking car. Look what happens in Georgia. It looks like it's a scene out of Dukes of Hazard. Watch this. So see wild. what I mean? You can see police were already responding to a crash on the highway when this car suddenly went airborne. After ramping off the back of a tow truck, the car somehow landed upright and deputies then rushed to help the woman who was driving the car. It is reported that she survived, 
We don't know her condition. Obviously, we're keeping a close eye on this, but we do wow. know she survived. Thank goodness. That video is really something. So this one also has everybody talking, both on set and in the control room. The <laughs> Chicago Bulls won six NBA championships between 1990 and 1998, arguably the best run in U.S. sports history. A run spearheaded by Michael Jordan, considered by many to be the best basketball player of all time. But let's be honest, impossible to achieve without a Robin to his Batman. That was Scottie Pippen. Pippen, speaking on his former Bulls teammate, Stacey King's podcast, Gimme the Hot Sauce on Friday, oh, brought some hot sauce, describing Jordan as, quote, horrible to play with. Like, I've seen Michael Jordan play before I came to play with the Bulls. You guys seen him play. He's a horrible player. He was horrible to play with. He was all one-on-one. He's shooting bad shots. And... All of a sudden, we become a team and we start winning. Everybody forgot who he was. Well, Pippen appeared to double down on his comments with this Instagram post of himself in the caption, writing, quote, from humble beginnings to six championships, two gold medals, Hall of Fame, and leading the Bulls franchise with the most playoff wins, here's to the unsung heroes. Cheers. Pippen says Jordan, early in his career, had a passion for scoring, not winning. Jordan has not commented. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It always takes a team. You only yes. win when you're a good team. It does. Same is true in so TV, I'm glad you're right? Here. This is a team sport, for sure. <laughs> for sure. We're glad you're with us today. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. CNN News Central is after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.